Chapters 51 and 52 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 51. Ernest had been ordained to a curacy in one of the central parts of London. He hardly knew anything of London yet, but his instincts drew him thither. The day after he was ordained he entered upon his duties, feeling much as his father had done when he found himself boxed up in the carriage with Christina on the morning of his marriage. Before the first three days were over he became aware that the light of the happiness which he had known during his four years at Cambridge had been extinguished, and he was appalled by the irrevocable nature of the step which he now felt he had taken much too hurriedly. The most charitable excuse that I could make for the vagaries which it will now be my duty to chronicle is that the shock of change consequent upon his becoming suddenly religious, being ordained, and leaving Cambridge, had been too much for my hero and had for the time thrown him off an equilibrium which was yet little supported by experience, and therefore, as a matter of course, unstable. Everyone has a mass of bad work in him, which he will have to work off and get rid of before he can do better. And indeed, the more lasting a man's ultimate good work is, the more sure he is to pass through a time, and perhaps a very long one, in which there seems very little hope for him at all. We must all sow our spiritual wild oats. The fault I feel personally disposed to find with my godson is not that he had wild oats to sow, but that they were such an exceedingly tame and uninteresting crop. The sense of humor and tendency to think for himself of which till a few months previously he had been showing fair promise, were nipped as though by a late frost, while his earlier habit of taking on trust everything that was told him by those in authority, and following everything out to the bitter end, no matter how preposterous, returned with redoubled strength. I suppose this was what might have been expected from any one placed as Ernest was now especially when his antecedents are remembered. But it surprised and disappointed some of his cooler-headed Cambridge friends, who had begun to think well of his ability. To himself it seemed that religion was incompatible with half-measures, or even with compromise. Circumstances had led to his being ordained. For the moment he was sorry they had, but he had done it and must go through with it. He therefore set himself to find out what was expected of him, and to act accordingly. His rector was a moderate high churchman, of no very pronounced views, an elderly man who had had too many curates not to have long since found out that the connection between rector and curate, like that between employer and employed in every other walk of life, was a mere matter of business. He had now two curates, of whom Ernest was the junior. The senior curate was named Pryor, 
and when this gentleman made advances, as he presently did, Ernest in his forlorn state was delighted to meet them. Pryor was about twenty-eight years old. He had been at Eton and at Oxford. He was tall and passed generally for good-looking. I only saw him once for about five minutes, and then thought him odious both in manners and appearance. Perhaps it was because he caught me up in a way I did not like. I had quoted Shakespeare for lack of something better to fill up a sentence, and had said that one touch of nature made the whole world kin. Ah, said Pryor, in a bold, brazen way which displeased me, but one touch of the unnatural makes it more kindred still. And he gave me a look as though he thought me an old bore, and did not care two straws whether I was shocked or not. Naturally enough, after this, I did not like him. This, however, is anticipating, for it was not till Ernest had been there three or four months in London that I happened to meet his fellow curate, and I must deal here rather with the effect he produced upon my godson than upon myself. Besides being what was generally considered good-looking, he was faultless in his get-up, and altogether the kind of man whom Ernest was sure to be afraid of, and yet be taken in by. The style of his dress was very high church, and his acquaintances were exclusively of the extreme high church party, but he kept his views a good deal in the background in his rector's presence, and that gentleman, though he looked askance on some of Pryor's friends, had no such ground of complaint against him as to make him sever the connection. Pryor, too, was popular in the pulpit, and take him all around, it was probable that many worse curates would be found for one better. When Pryor called on my hero, as soon as the two were alone together, he eyed him all over with a quick penetrating glance, and seemed not dissatisfied with the result. For I must say here that Ernest had improved in personal appearance under the more genial treatment he had received at Cambridge. Pryor, in fact, approved of him sufficiently to treat him civilly, and Ernest was immediately won by any one who did this. It was not long before he discovered that the high church party, and even Rome itself, had more to say for themselves than he had thought. This was his first snipe-like change of flight. Pryor introduced him to several of his friends. They were all of them young clergymen, belonging, as I have said, to the highest of the high church school, but Ernest was surprised to find how much they resembled other people when among themselves. This was a shock to him. It was ere long a still greater one to find that certain thoughts which he had warred against as fatal to his soul, and which he had imagined he should lose once for all on ordination, were still as troublesome to him as they had been. He also saw plainly enough that the young gentlemen who formed the circle of Pryor's friends were in much the same unhappy predicament as himself. This was deplorable. The only way out of it that Ernest could see was that he should get married at once. 
but then he did not know any one whom he wanted to marry. He did not know any woman, in fact, whom he would not rather die than marry. It had been one of Theobald's and Christina's main objects to keep him out of the way of women, and they had so far succeeded that women had become to him mysterious, inscrutable objects to be tolerated when it was impossible to avoid them, but never to be sought out or encouraged. As for any man loving, or even being at all fond of any woman, he supposed it was so, but he believed the greater number of those who professed such sentiments were liars. Now, however, it was clear that he had hoped against hope too long, and that the only thing to do was to go and ask the first woman who would listen to him to come and be married to him as soon as possible. He broached this to Pryor, and was surprised to find that this gentleman, though attentive to such members of his flock as were young and good-looking, was strongly in favor of the celibacy of the clergy, as indeed were the other demure young clerics to whom Pryor had introduced Ernest. Chapter 52 "'You know, my dear Pontifex,' said Pryor to him, some few weeks after Ernest had become acquainted with him, when the two were taking a constitutional one day in Kensington Gardens. "'You know, my dear Pontifex, it is all very well to quarrel with Rome, but Rome has reduced the treatment of the human soul to a science, while our own church, though so much purer in many respects, has no organized system either of diagnosis or pathology.' I mean, of course, spiritual diagnosis and spiritual pathology. Our church does not prescribe remedies upon any settled system, and what is still worse, even when her physicians have according to their lights ascertained the disease and pointed out the remedy, she has no discipline which will ensure its being actually applied. If our patients do not choose to do as we tell them, we cannot make them, Perhaps really under all the circumstances this is as well, for we are spiritually mere horse-doctors as compared with the Roman priesthood, nor can we hope to make much headway against the sin and misery that surround us, till we return in some respects to the practice of our forefathers and of the greater part of Christendom. Ernest asked in what respects it was that his friend desired a return to the practice of our forefathers. "'Why, my dear fellow, can you really be ignorant? It is just this. Either the priest is indeed a spiritual guide, as being able to show people how they ought to live better than they can find out for themselves, or he is nothing at all. He has no raison d'etre. If the priest is not as much a healer and director of men's souls as a physician is of their bodies, what is he? The history of all ages has shown, and surely you must know this as well as I do, that as men cannot cure the bodies of their patients if they have not been properly trained in hospitals under skilled teachers, so neither can souls be cured of their more hidden ailments without the help of men who are skilled in soul-craft, or, in other words, of priests. 
what do one half of our formularies and rubrics mean if not this how in the name of all that is reasonable can we find out the exact nature of a spiritual malady unless we have had experience of other similar cases how can we get this without express training at present we have to begin all experiments for ourselves without profiting by the organized experience of our predecessors inasmuch as that experience is never organized or coordinated at all at the outset therefore each one of us must ruin many souls which could be saved by knowledge of a few elementary principles ernest was very much impressed as for men curing themselves continued prior they can no more cure their own souls than they can cure their own bodies or manage their own law affairs in these two last cases they see the folly of meddling with their own cases clearly enough and go to a professional adviser as a matter of course surely a man's soul is at once a more difficult and intricate matter to treat and at the same time it is more important to him that it should be treated rightly than that either his body or his money should be so what are we to think of the practice of a church which encourages people to rely on unprofessional advice in matters affecting their eternal welfare when they would not think of jeopardizing their worldly affairs by such insane conduct ernest could see no weak place in this these ideas had crossed his own mind vaguely before now but he had never laid hold of them or set them in an orderly manner before himself nor was he quick at detecting false analogies and the misuse of metaphors in fact he was a mere child in the hands of his fellow curate and what resumed prior does all this point to firstly to the duty of confession the outcry against which is absurd as an outcry would be against dissection as part of the training of medical students granted these young men must see and do a great deal we do not ourselves like even to think of but they should adopt some other profession unless they are prepared for this they may even get inoculated with poison from a dead body and lose their lives but they must stand their chance so if we aspire to be priests indeed as well as name we must familiarize ourselves with the minutest and most repulsive details of all kinds of sin so that we may recognize it in all its stages some of us must doubtlessly perish spiritually in such investigations we cannot help it all science must have its martyrs and none of these will deserve better of humanity than those who have fallen in the pursuit of spiritual pathology ernest grew more and more interested but in the meekness of his soul said nothing i do not desire this martyrdom for myself continued the other on the contrary i will avoid it to the very utmost of my power but if it be god's will that i should fall while studying what i believe most calculated to advance his glory then i say not my will o lord but thine be done this was too much even for ernest 
I heard of an Irish woman once, he said, with a smile, who said she was a martyr to the drink. And so she was, rejoined Pryor with warmth and he went on to show that this good woman was an experimentalist whose experiment, though disastrous in its effects upon herself, was pregnant with instruction to other people. She was thus a true martyr, or witness to the frightful consequences of intemperance, to the saving, doubtless, of many who, but for her martyrdom, would have taken to drinking. She was one of a forlorn hope whose failure to take a certain position went to the proving it to be impregnable, and therefore to the abandonment of all attempt to take it. This was almost as great a gain to mankind as the actual taking of the position would have been. Besides, he added more hurriedly, the limits of vice and virtue are wretchedly ill-defined. Half the vices which the world condemns most loudly have seeds of good in them, and require moderate use rather than total abstinence. Ernest asked timidly for an instance. No, no, said Pryor, I will give you no instance, but I will give you a formula that shall embrace all instances. It is this, that no practice is entirely vicious which has not been extinguished among the comeliest, most vigorous, and most cultivated races of mankind, in spite of centuries of endeavor to extirpate it. If a vice, in spite of such efforts, can still hold its own among the most polished nations, it must be founded on some immutable truth or fact in human nature, and must have some compensatory advantage which we cannot afford altogether to dispense with. But said Ernest timidly. Is not this virtually doing away with all distinctions between right and wrong, and leaving people without any moral guide whatever? Not the people, was the answer. It must be our care to be guides to these, for they are and always will be incapable of guiding themselves sufficiently. We should tell them what they must do and in an ideal state of things should be able to enforce their doing it. Perhaps when we are better instructed the ideal state may come about. Nothing will so advance it as greater knowledge of spiritual pathology on our part. For this three things are necessary. Firstly, absolute freedom in experiment for us, the clergy. Secondly, absolute knowledge of what the laity think and do, and of what thoughts and actions result in what spiritual conditions. And thirdly, a compact or organization among ourselves. If we are to do any good, we must be a closely united body, and must be sharply divided from the laity. Also, we must be free from those ties which a wife and children involve. I can hardly express the horror with which I am filled by seeing English priests living in what I can only designate as open matrimony. It is deplorable. The priests must be absolutely sexless. If not in practice, yet at any rate in theory, absolutely. And that too by a theory so universally accepted that none shall venture to dispute it. But said Ernest. 
Has not the Bible already told people what they ought and ought not to do? And is it not enough for us to insist on what can be found here, and let the rest alone? If you begin with the Bible, was the rejoinder, you are three parts gone on the road to infidelity, and will go to the other part before you know where you are. The Bible is not without its value to us in the clergy, but for the laity it is a stumbling block which cannot be taken out of their way too soon or too completely. Of course I mean on the supposition that they read it, which happily they seldom do. If people read the Bible as the ordinary British churchman or churchwoman reads it, it is harmless enough. But if they read it with any care, which we should assume they will if we give it them at all, it is fatal to them. "'What do you mean?' said Ernest, more and more astonished, but more and more feeling that he was at least in the hands of a man who had definite ideas. "'Your question shows me that you have never read your Bible. A more unreliable book was never put upon paper. Take my advice and don't read it, not till you are a few years older and may do so safely.' But surely you believe the Bible when it tells you of such things as that Christ died and rose from the dead. Surely you believe this, said Ernest, quite prepared to be told that Pryor believed nothing of the kind. I do not believe it. I know it. But how, if the testimony of the Bible fails? On that of the living voice of the Church, which I know to be infallible, and to be informed of Christ himself. End of chapter 52 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman